Hello, beautiful. You are listening to episode 93 of the Africana Woman podcast. Chulu is my name. I am a writer, personal brand consultant, entrepreneur, and mentor. This show is the home of African women's stories. We share ideas, triumphs, challenges, and lessons from our perspective as women. Our library is a step to cementing our place in history. Her story, your story, is powerful. Thank you so much for tuning in. Welcome to all the new listeners and welcome back family. Click the subscribe button to make sure you are always the first to know when a new episode drops and tell at least one girlfriend today about the Africana Woman podcast. Use that share button. We are six conversations away from the official 100th episode celebration. On Saturday, 24th September, Africana Women shall descend upon Kabwe for a live podcast recording. There is accommodation for the ladies who are coming from out of town. Think of it as lights, cameras, fashion, interviews, networking, good food. Yo, guys, <laughs> I can't wait. So you can still grab your ticket. Just go to africanawoman.com and find the event section. Okay, let's get straight into the conversation today. This is a two-part conversation and right now is part one, okay? And it is with Mo Civil, who I absolutely adore. We talk about pursuing a career in academia, but we also touch on challenges that patients with HIV and prostate cancer face. Now, this is such an important topic, so I had to split the conversation into two to honor the significance, okay? Please enjoy the conversation. Most Sybil describes herself as a Nigerian-born, Korean-speaking, and wandering intellectual. Her unique perspective is derived from her experience growing up in Nigeria to now living in the U.S., learning and speaking Korean, and enriched by the adventures her travels have brought on. Her podcast show, launched in 2018, is called The More Sybil Podcast and is available across several platforms for podcasts including iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and has reached over 150,000 people in more than 90 countries. As a podcast host, her raison d'etre is that there's a lot more that binds us than separates us. So through her platform, she strives to showcase that same but different thread that runs through us all by sharing stories that promote cultural curiosity among people towards creating a better world. First of all, guys, I am so excited. Most symbols in the building. <laughs> Mo, hi. Hi, Joe. My goodness. <laughs> Thanks so much for finally like, it's, bringing me on your show. <laughs> afternoon for me, and it's like morning for Mo. So it's I'm morning. Like, energy. And she's, <laughs> she's like, girl, you're too- Under the big sky, yeah. It's funny how we're <laughs> under the same sky, but different time zones. Right. So I, of life. <laughs> I'm so excited, guys. So I met Mo. Um, oh, that place. Go? I know. That, that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we shall not mention your name. 
girly. There's this thing we applied for, and they're like, oh, you know, we're going to help um, podcasters of color, you know, really get their, their podcasts out there. So we applied, we got in, and we started doing, um, I guess, the onboarding, and then it went silent, and then it was no more. <laughs> I think but, somebody needs to track them. I, I have a suspicion that intellectual property was stolen. Like we need to do like an investigative report because it took a lot of details from us, a lot of creative content. My goodness, I don't want to think about that place anymore. They know themselves. <laughs> but you know what? The best thing that came out of it is that I gained a podcast sister. And let me tell you, this woman, this woman is so funny. First of all, I've been on her podcast and you guys need to go and listen to it. We were just laughing the whole way. (laughs) (laughs) She has told me so much about podcasting. I absolutely love her. So I'm very, very excited that she's on the podcast today. Ah, Okay. First, let's get started. Uh, Mo, what is your favorite childhood memory? Oh my gosh. Sure, that kind of crept on me. Like, I would say, what's somebody ask you, who's your favorite child or what's your favorite music? Uh, favorite child. Oh, you know what? I have several, but yeah. I think the one, the one of my favorite memories, childhood memories, sadly was also like that last age of innocence when you realize that, man, 20 people cannot play together for 20 years or 20 friends cannot play together for 20 years. Actually, we're my cousins. Um, so my mom has four sisters mm. or they're a sibling of four. And they had planned this thing where, and, and, and we, as growing up as kids, we're closer to my mom's side of the family than my dad's side of the family. Cause my dad had like, you know, step siblings. It was just a very hot mess on the other end. But my mom's family, you know, we kind of grew up together. I mean, I knew my cousins for the most part. And then the plan was to rotate Christmases at each other's houses every year. And this time around, we had to go to Oshun State, which is like uh, one of the states in the southwest parts of Nigeria. And we had to board a, a bus. Now, you know how African moms can be quite paranoid. They didn't want all the kids to be in one bus just in case something happened and like a whole generation is wiped away. So they split us. So it was kind of my first time traveling by myself and my sibling. And, but it was so much fun. All of my cousins were there. Even though I had like, I was in pharmacy school then. I had exams like three weeks later, like first week in January, but I had so much fun. We did stuff together. We walked around, went to the stream. the, The vivid shot that I have is just us walking on the street and holding hands. And we've never been quite close, in my opinion, since then. People have, like, you know, gone there different places. We had to talk to some of us, you know. I'm only maybe friends with... I want to say friends, you know. The cousins are always going to be blood, right? But it's not like that anymore. But that memory was actually one of my favorite Christmases, you know. So, yeah. Aw, that sounds so yeah. nice. That, that's Thank you. So, I mean, I mentioned it in the, in your bio, but you're from Nigeria. You grew up in Nigeria. Uh And yes. When did you leave? How, how long were you there? Oh, I was born in Nigeria in the eighties. Um, and I left when I was 25. I moved to the U S in 2011. Um, so after I got my pharmacy degree, I worked for a little bit for Chevron and I worked for, um, as a HIV pharmacist in, um, UCH, which is like in Ibadan. And I decided I needed to go back to school because I sucked as a pharmacist. I wanted to learn more about 
what happened to um, like all social determinants of health and um, why patients that have free access to drugs, because then I was working with HIV patients, were not taking it, even though the drugs were free, because I really didn't understand patient behavior. So that frustration drove me to grad school. So I went to the University of Texas in Austin where I got my master's and my PhD in health economics and outcomes research. And I have I was there for about five years, got my master's and PhD, and then I currently work in Oklahoma now. Yeah. I like the way you're just like cruising through. Okay, wait, let's just go back a little bit. (laughs) Like, so why don't people take the free medicine? Like, what did you find? So, I mean, as you know, um, HIV, when it came to Africa, it was where they have our infrastructure is already overburdened, like healthcare system, right? I mean, we're dealing with malaria, we're dealing with even cancers, and then bam, this is a disease that just eats at you, and it also has that social stigma, right? And this was um, early 2000s, thereabouts, and um, we found out that, of course, then the side effects of the medications were quite, you know, um, horrible to deal with. You're thinking about rashes that make even your disease status more visible. You're thinking about your psychiatric um um, side effects. Also thinking about sleepiness. So take, for example, a classic drug we used to use there was effavirenz that would cause vivid dreams and make you sleep sleepy. I remember a case of a cop who was not even taking his medications because he was always falling asleep on the job. And, and of course, um, then we didn't have what we call the heart medications where they combine pills to make it. So instead of taking seven pills, you just take one. Then you had to have like a cocktail. Think of M&Ms and people just popping it. I'm a pharmacist, and let me just tell you, it's difficult for me to finish a whole course of antibiotics. Like, I'm a horrible patient. And then you're telling people to take medications that even produces more side effects. And of course, um, they didn't have a lot of support. And what we also found out was a lot of women who were coming to the clinic were those who took um, blood transfusion way back in the 90s during the cesarean operations. And then we, we lacked sophisticated tools to be able to screen the blood. I mean, they would do the screening, but sometimes the viruses were in the latent phases, so they were not easily detected. And so take, for example, when they became immunocompromised in the future, maybe they had a cold or a malaria, and then bam, the, it gets activated and they start came, coming down with HIV. And everybody thought then that, well, if you had HIV as a housewife, you were sleeping around. But then go back in time, you find that it was through the blood they, they got in the hospital when they were giving birth to their child. And the saddest part was even their kids were getting infected. So imagine you as a, and sometimes the husbands were not infected. So a lot of, I think it was the social issues of it. And of course, you know, um, Patients can understand the need to take the medications, but the motivation. And that really, you know, I was, I was fresh out of school. I graduated from pharmacy, one of the best in my class. And so I was a little bit cocky, like, oh, I know what, I know what's best for my patients. And I worked with Chevron. So I wanted to make a contrast. I worked with Chevron when we had everything. I mean, they didn't have to pay a dime. Super privileged environment. And it was ideal, like, you know, doctors, pharmacies, everybody coming together, nurses would have like ward rounds. It was very collaborative. Now contrast that to um, walking in the garden, which is like four hours away in a rural area where patients would drive four hours to come pick up their medications. And they would see the doctor, the counselor, the phlebotomists. Phlebotomists are those that will take their bloods. So by the time they come to the pharmacist, we already know everything about them. We can see their charts. We can see how they were three months before they came in. 
And the blood never lies. A person can say, yeah, yeah, I've been taking my medications. But with HIV, we check two things. Their blood counts, sorry, their um, CD4, which is like what fights, like your white blood cells that fights for the virus, and then the viral load. What you want to see, ideally, is the viral load going down and the white blood cells going up. So if you see it cross, you're like, man, what happened? And like, you know, and then you start hearing all the stories. And it broke my heart because a lot of patients died. I mean, I had a, a patient who was a guy, a 12-year-old boy. Him and his mom were affected. And the mom had so much guilt because it was true that, you know, CS that he, the mom had. And his when he came to the clinic the first time, his CD, his CD4 was so low. He had almost no immune you know, system, but they kept bumping him up and he was doing quite well. And then he took a turn for the worse and he died. That case really stayed with me. And so... I, I mean, when you see patients just dying and so helpless, like all your knowledge in pharmacy school is not helping them. And I realized that, man, I got to go back to school. I got to know why patients don't take their medications so we can maybe build interventions. I really understand what it's like because I, I didn't know what it was like. You know, I'm here sitting in my t- on my chair talking about what the drug does to the body, what the body does to the drug. But I don't know what it's like to go home and start feeling guilty or um, be scared that people will see the rashes in your face and know for sure you have HIV. And then it was heavily stigmatized in my community. But yeah, um, that was about um, almost 16, 17 years ago. So yeah. Wow. So I just got like a whole lesson. Do you know that I didn't (laughs) know that, you know, the rashes were caused by the medicine. I thought it was like part of the... That's crazy. That's- so the rashes could be caused by the virus, uh-huh. but there's some medications that they'll give you what they call Steven Johnson reactions. And those rashes are actually worse than what the virus would cause. Yeah. And it was, it was a dead giveaway. It's almost as, as good as putting a sign in your forehead. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, look at me, scan this code because I'm HIV positive, that kind of thing. I mean, who wanted that? Yeah. And this was when it was heavily stigmatized. Nobody, now people can say, oh yeah, I have HIV and just talk about it like they have a cold. But way back then in Nigeria, no, everybody just touched you were a wayward person. And good luck as a housewife trying to convince your husband that you didn't step out on him. So you Yeah, so so yeah. That's some <laughs> So I yeah, mean yeah. like with your career, not like you did all the research, do you feel like um the work that you're doing is making an impact in the way that you, you foresaw? Like when you left mm. for the States. You know what I mean? I don't know if I've asked the question. Yeah. Oh, no, I know what you mean. So actually, um, it's okay. It was a hard decision leaving Nigeria. and I, But I knew that I needed to go out and just get something started because I love my country. I love the people. I still feel the most comfortable at home every time I go back home. But we still have a long ways to go in harnessing the potential of you know our people because you have extraordinary people doing ordinary things back home because our, our, our government just doesn't see the need to like, you know, retain those talents. So coming to the U.S. and getting my PhD. Um, so after school, because I was a little bit confused as to whether I wanted to go to pharma, work for the big industry or go to academia. I do enjoy teaching to an extent. And so what I did, because usually your dissertation determines where you're going to end up. I crafted my dissertation in such a way that it could fit the industry and it could fit academia. And I got two job offers because I, I played both sides. But anyways, I ended up choosing academia because I wanted that um, unrestrained um, um, pursuit of knowledge and not having to be um, um, confined to whatever assets the company I was working for. And so 
another thing I forgot to mention was while I was in grad school, I began also exploring prostate cancer because I had a father figure who died of it. And I wanted to look into understudied areas as at that time, there was almost no literature about looking at younger black men. I focused really in, in the black population because prostate cancer is quite pervasive in, in the black community. While the five year, overall five year survival rate for prostate cancer is as high as 95, 99%, which is a good odd. Like, and I say this with all um, tenderness and carefulness of all the cancers you can get, prostate cancer isn't quite bad compared to say like lung cancer or pancreatic cancer because the odds are, you know, a lot better. But if you're not, look at the within group differences within the black community by the time they present to the hospital they have you know more aggressive forms of it and so we're looking at other social determinants of health racial discrimination not accessing the healthcare, where they live because you, you know here in the u.s your zip code determines your health status and so i wanted to look at the younger black male like we know that a lot of our behaviors are formed as we grow older and the way men and women are groomed are different. You know, you and I as females, I mean, my gynecologist could walk into this room right now and tell me to open up and I would never blink two eyes about it because I'm used to things going in and out of there, you know, amen, sister. But then you're looking at a man, I mean, nothing has been done around that area and then he, st- he turns 40, you want him to bend over so you can stick your finger in his butt for an examination? No way, Jose. So I want to really understand that social behavioral issues that might predict their future intentions to screen when it was recommended for them. Because we know that the best prevention or even to improve your odds of not dying of cancer is to catch it in time. And, um, and I've, I've done a lot of work in that group and we've published a lot. Now I moved to the very end of the cancer care continuum where I'm looking at prostate cancer survivors because those are also an understudied area, especially black men. Now they didn't die of the cancer, but a lot of them, it feels like they've died because they're not able to have, you know, erectile functioning anymore. They still have, um, you know, um, urinary incontinence. I knew a man who wanted to kill himself. I mean, he was very clear. He said it was suicidal because he's doing the radiotherapy he did. They blasted off some, his, his, his penis couldn't work anymore. Five years, he was very suicidal until his doctor inserted a mechanical pump. Now he's able to retain some sexual functioning and his quality of life improved. And so having to understand what quality of life meant to, you know, cancer survivors is very important because you're looking in, you're like, oh, you survived. You must be feeling great. But some of them will have preferred to have died if they're not able to have sex or perform like a man. I had a man who went through hormone therapy and he started growing boobs. He started having like, you know, um, premenstrual syndrome, like crying and being so emotional at his daughter's game. And this is a man that has been, a, you know, how black men were so, so strong in their masculinity. So that's what I study right now. And as a scientist, sometimes you, you do things just because you're curious, you know, you're like that little squirrel chasing the nut and trying to find, you know, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. But because a lot of my work is also community engaged, I see the impacts. I work with my, I have a, a community advisory board where I work with black men who are prostate cancer survivors. And they filled me with so much knowledge because I'm female. And I always start my conversation with, my name is Mo, I'm female. As you can tell, I don't have a prostate and I care about yours and here's why. And I go into my personal story, losing a father figure to prostate cancer and how that I never want someone to, you know, go through that. I saw him go from a strong man to almost half of his size, like the cancer added him. And he wasn't, he was, he was very rich. He could afford all the healthcare. He got all the best of treatment. He had it. I mean, he was, he had the radiotherapy and then he had the chemotherapy, but then the cancer took him away. And that image is always like, you know, a background screensaver at the back of my mind. Cause I never want someone to go through that if they could help it. So as far as impacts, 
if I look at how my cab members respond to our meetings, because we have town halls, I bring some of them to my podcast, talk about their experiences. I've been funded by the Department of Defense and the NIH to keep doing my research. That is where, I, I mean, I can, if I measure impact like that, that, that's where it gives me the greatest joy, just knowing that I'm listening to these men and they are informing my research. And of course, as an as someone in academia, you can measure impacts by how many grants you have. I'm, I have a lot of grants right now. I can't even afford to. I have to make sure I do all the work so I can apply for more. Um, I have a lot of publications. I go for conferences. I have good networks. I have great mentors. So you can measure impacts in that way. But for me, the greatest really is, you know, um, being a part of that community and knowing that I'm not alone, you know, and I, I'm I'm honored to have these men to work with them and learn from them and keep building interventions that can really directly impact their lives because their story matters, their voices matters, matter. I could go on and on. Never ask a scientist about I their so research. You can questions. talk on and on. Oh my okay. okay. <laughs> That's a lot. I'm just, okay, I don't really, I think... I haven't really um, understood like how it works to be um, somebody in academia. Just walk me through because I feel like there's some people that may be listening and they're thinking, okay, I'm going to get my PhD and then I need to decide whether I'm going to go into academia or, you know, or another route. So if you go through the academia route, what does that actually mean? Mm. Um but the, like, like, I don't understand it. Like when you're saying I've got grants, I've got, you know, all of I'm, I'm like, okay, what happens? Okay. So am I allowed to be a little bit raw? Is that okay? Yes. Go ahead. Think of it like you have a pimp, right? <laughs> and you have girls working for the pimp. Now the okay. pimp is the university and I'm one of the H-O-E-S. Right? For the, and then you go out there, you get the money, the money goes to your pimp. And then you're oh. <laughs> that's academia, like you oh know, summarizing a few words, yeah. Because the, the 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 school you work for, the institution you work for, they they have a lease on your intellectual property. They don't own it though, but they are leasing mm. it. But everything you oh. get while you're working there goes to the university. Now, of course, you can get. So, take for example, my first DoD grant was about a quarter of a million, which is not a lot. Uh, I mean, it was like, it was $280,000. It wasn't a lot. That's like, you know, small, but it was good to get started. It goes to the university, but I get, you know, um, other funds, like, like build my lab, do my research, pay incentives, travel for conferences, you know, data collection and all that. And you get, maybe you can get like a little bump in your salary, but all of those things adds up to almost like your performance score. Cause, okay. okay. Another thing you should know that there are two kinds of tracks you can get in academia. You can be on a tenure track or a non-tenure track. Mm-hmm. Now, a tenure track is just that you have a defined role. Mm-hmm. Usually mine is, it's called the Trinity, research, teaching, and services. Mm-hmm. So my research would be, you know, uh, my publications, my grants, um, conferences I go to. My teaching is, you know, my peer evaluation, my student evaluation, innovations in teaching. My services will be the committees I'm a part of, how I'm contributing, you know, my other talents to these committees. And by the end of, say, five to seven years, I put my reports together and say, this is what I've done so far. But usually the school will have like a rule book. And I always encourage you, once you're applying to academia and you're going on tenure track, let that rule book be your Bible because that's going to show you this is what you're supposed to do X, Y, and Z to be able to move on to the next level. So when you're hired, I was hired as an assistant professor. And then 
I'm almost close to tenure, meaning to be promoted to the next level, then I'll go up as an associate, hopefully. And from associate, another seven to eight years, you go up for full professor. So it's like a case of Jacob and, you know, Rachel situation. Like that's just academia, but then you have the pimps and the holes. Yeah. And um, for research, again, it's when you're in grad school, you start somewhere. And luckily for me, what I was doing in grad school, I just extended it to academia. I didn't have to start again. And even though I talked about prostate cancer, I actually have two streams of research. I have lupus and prostate cancer, and there are two parallel lines. They could never meet for now, but I, I, I work with the dermatologist, um, and we've been, we've built a scale together to look at, to actually measure quality of life. And the scale is commercially available. It's been used in clinical trials. And I also have a consulting firm to kind of work with, you know, um, people that use our skill to be sure that it's being used in the proper way in the right population. So that's a side gig I have from my grad school up until now. And, the, and anybody wants to check out this skill, it's called the CLEQOL, the Cutaneous Lupus Erythematosis Quality of Life Scale. And you will see my name on there with Benjamin Chung, who's my collaborator in, at University of Texas in Southwestern Dallas. And then you, so your, your publications, your research, your grant, that's part of, you know, academia. And then also you have to also think about the, the people you work with because they can make or my experiences. And I think I was in Texas. I'm in Oklahoma. I don't know if you know much about the South, West of, of the, Oklahoma is not like Texas. And I even, even mentioning Texas feels like a stretch, specifically Austin. Austin stands differently from Texas. Austin is more liberal, you know, it's like a hippie bubble. I felt so much at home in Austin and then bam, I'm in Oklahoma, which is, and I hate to say this, what redneck country, it's so different. Um, people are nice, but you still have a lot of explaining to do about who you are. Oh, you speak good English. Like, hello, I have more degrees than you can count on your finger. And then, you know, so some things you just had to adjust to. So really, I hope that really helped you understand the, the, the breadth of academia. It's, it's a reward. It's a challenge, but you have to make sure this is really what you want because it's going to take a lot out of you. So I've heard some people say, I don't know if I heard it in a movie. I don't know, girl, but um, the thing that it takes a long time to get to like that professor title. Is that true? Yeah. 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 I mean, and so unlike, say for example, when you're in primary school or grade school, you know that, after X amount of semesters or terms, you move on to the next level. Now, tenure track is, some universities will give you like five to eight years, depends. So you can come up within that time. But really that conversation is between you and your department chair. If they think you're not ready, because the approvals are done by levels, like your, your, your department and it goes to the college and then to the university. And if you don't move, if you don't pass the approval at the department level, you can't go to the next level. So you're, you need to, Make sure you're in conversations with your chair to tell me, hey, let him know, hey, by, or let them know, hey, um, I'm actually ready to go up next year. What do you think? If they say, oh, yeah, I think you're, you're good to go, then that's at least like a nod. But again, remember that faculty handbook I told you? Some schools will tell you for you to move to this next level, you need X amount of grant, like in dollar amount, they will let you know. You need this amount of publications. You need to have, you know, gotten this specific type of grant. They might need like an R1. An R1 is um, from the NIH and depending on the institute you apply to, R1 is, so NIH has like a lot of alphabets, the K word, there's the, you know, um, U awards, but R1 is like the gold plates, like, some universities want you to have like three or five R1s. And R1s are not very easy to get, you know, but 
their career making moves. Some some Ivy League highly placed universities want you to have at least three R ones before you can move on to the next level. Some universities don't care. They might just tell you, you just need maybe $250,000 or whatever. At least show some evidence of federal funding. So again, the higher, if you go to these high stake universities, like Ivy League universities, know that it's all cutthroat. And if you don't do well, you can get booted out. And so, yeah, it can take up to seven years to move associates and then associates to full professor can take an additional seven years. That's 14 years in total. But those are like average. Sometimes it can be up to 20 years. It could be, I mean, and some women like take breaks, maybe to have kids. They slow down a little bit. It's so self-paced. You're not running against anybody. It's your journey. And you can take the pace as much as you want. People actually leave universities and go start somewhere else again. So again, it's, it's all, it's, a, it's an individual race. Wait, wait. So you're telling me that I'm at a university and then I've been there, I don't know, maybe 14 years, but then I decide to move to B university. Then they consider me starting from the beginning. Yeah. Because remember that most, well, it depends. It depends if they don't share like from some level of equivalency. And usually I would assume okay. that if you're moving from a university, yeah, you want to go to a higher university, right? Their criteria might yeah. be so different. They will hardly give you credit for anything because remember that the grant money you get is tied to your institution right? And even though you can transfer it as you move, not everything is quite transferable. You can make a a strong case and say, I actually need the promotion right away, but you could give me the tenure later once I've shown proof of. So it's, it's very, very dicey. Um, but at the end of the day, whatever will make somebody move from a university to B university, it might be something just above and beyond just being productive. It could be maybe your mental health. Maybe you're so stressed where you are. It's a toxic environment. You're not well supported or so many things. So by all means, um, I've had friends who've made that pivot. As a matter of fact, one of my mentors, she left just as she was, as she was about to get tenure. And she was like, you know what? I'm not going to stay here and let them ridicule me. Um, I don't even want to give them the satisfaction of doing that. I don't even want their tenure. I'd rather get tenure somewhere else. And she went somewhere else and started all over again. And she... She was on her fifth year when she got tenured in that new place right now. She's doing fantastic. Wow. That's academia. Wow. It's, 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 it's a career. I, I feel like there's a lot of moving parts. There's like applying for things. There's doing the research. Oh, yeah. Teaching. The, girl, I don't know. I don't know, girl. I don't know. If I had, if I had the answer to that question, I'll sell it in the bottle and ship it through Amazon and make some more money out of it. I don't know. Like sometimes it feels like self-inflicted pain, but you know what? Um, <laughs> I, I enjoy my research. Some some aspect of my job I don't really enjoy, but my research and impact is making and my instilling knowledge in, in students, I do enjoy those parts. And if you think about the benefits outweighing the risk of things, I think that's when you think you've made some, some progress. So, I mean, I always ask myself, what else would I be doing? And I haven't come up with another answer to that question. So I just keep going. But I know that whenever it's time for me to make a move or change my directions, I trust that it's going to be the right move for me. Um, but for now, I, it's okay. It's not super ideal because there's so many, you know, um, children, like, I wish you had more time. There's so much things you have to go through as not just being in academia, but being a female, a minority, an outsider. There's so many layers to it that it's just like, can we all just be transparent and not, you know, back talking and all this microaggression, like the head, like your research already is already stressing off for you. So, yeah. Um, but you know what? Uh, my philosophy is I spend a third of my life at work 
but the other rest of my life, I, I want to spend it with people that I love. So I have, you know, my family is great. I have a strong support system. Um, I have my workout buddies. So my life outside of work is so rich that even sometimes when work gets overwhelming, I come home to my mistress and, you know, it's all good in the wood. <laughs> okay, just one more question sure. that I have. Looking at, um, you know, when you started off saying that, you know, you, you, you're doing, you're focusing on certain um, research topics mm-hmm. because they're, hasn't been enough research done and especially around like, you know, demographics with, um, you know, black people or how do they say bio? Bio, I think I forgot about what to say. What's that? Um, I forgot what the word is. People of color. People of color. Yeah. yeah, Minorities. Yeah. Minorities. So have you seen a shift? Do you think um, there has been a change in the last, I don't know, 10 years? 15 years that you've been doing it? I think that so. Like, no yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. I think so. And of course, it's a collective shift, right? Because now we're having more researchers like me doing more stuff. I remember that um, people that went before us, they actually started work. So we don't take credit for that. They laid the foundation for us because you, you can't work in isolation. Like those grants I talked about that I had, I have great mentors who helped me get those grants. Without their input, intellectual input and time, I wouldn't be here today. And that's what academia helps you with. It's like a generational intertwining of, of, you know, of, of skills and time and dedication that I've chosen this person to mentor. I think that's one of the greatest gifts I have gotten as an academia, as an academician, whatever that word is, or someone in academia. And, um, we have more also having more, um, minorities coming into the spaces mm-hmm. is also highlighting the need to keep doing research that really matters to us. Cause if we don't do it, who's going to do it? Like who's going to care more about your environment than you? Like you can highlight that problem. And the NIH being one of the largest funders in the world, they do recognize that. So they have um special announcements for research that targets specific subgroups, you know, like minorities, they have, you know, um, request um proposals. They have, um, um, special issues, like they have opportunities, mechanisms in place to make sure that everybody is included and every, every, like there's opportunities for you to get money to be able to do those things that you, you might, but you have to make sure you articulate it. That's where your grantsmanship really matters because how you word it again matters. It's like a, it's like a song selling their body. Like you want to go to the highest bid. And I keep, I hate that I keep using, you know, the pimps and, the whatnot as it, but I think it's something that people can relate with. So again, how you put the grant together, your the um, evidence you put together has to be compelling enough for you to be able to sway the mind of who's going to give you that money. Mm. But so, yes, there's been a lot of move. There's been a lot of changes. I mean, we we know more now. Just the interventions take about 17 years for you to start seeing the impact. Uh, but we know more than we did 10 years ago, and I, I want to believe that it gets better because it's a it's a relay race. We are going to hand, by the time I'm done, I'm going to hand the baton and everything to the next generation. But if the previous generation do, they didn't do the work that they did, I won't be able to benefit from, you know, the foundation they laid. So do you think you're a, a, a better researcher than a pharmacist? Uh, that's a tough question. So actually, I knew that even while I was in school, I'm like, there's no way I want to sit behind the counter and 
count pills all my life. And I know that's what everybody thinks what pharmacy is. Um, that's why I really went through the unconventional routes. While I was in Chevron, it was one of the most intellectually stimulating places because I saw a lot of cases. I, you know, you read books, you read, you know, your, you read your, um, what, what I do? you go do research on, on health issues, on ways to treat them. Even as an intern, then you were, you were part of the team. They listened to you. And I mean, everyone had nurses, lab scientists, everyone had that, you know, input. and then I moved to Chevron where it was specialty care. And uh, as far as me being a better pharmacist, I think because of the way my brain functions, I like to work behind the scenes. And it's why I cannot be doing the same thing every day. That's not the kind of person I am. I would die a quicker death that way. But this gives me more challenge. And I love, I love when things are be challenging. It's just how I'm wired. So as far as being a better pharmacist, I wouldn't say I was a horrible pharmacist. I just feel like I feel like I have more fulfillment. Like I, my life is more fulfilled this way. And it's, just, it's different for everybody. Some people love, I have colleagues who went to school together and they're, they have their own pharmacy stores and they're doing great things in the community. Like, you know, for example, glucose screening, blood, pr- they're out in their community. It's not just a shop. It's a calling for them. So I think the moral of the story is whatever your hands find to do, do it well. You know, we're all called, we have different talents, different skills. Academia just fits what I'm doing right now. In 10 years time, maybe if I come on the show, I could be in, in the industry or retired. I never know, but for right now, I think this is what I'm supposed to be. Lovely. Lovely. You are considering taking the route of academia. I hope this was helpful to you. But it occurred to me that some people who are listening to this might think or, you know, might doubt the importance of the work Mo does because she moved away from Nigeria. You know, I I can see someone thinking like, oh, but the issues are in Nigeria. So why isn't she working in Nigeria? Like, listen calm down. But (laughs) let me remind you about the importance of representation. For eons, research has been done by white males. Well, you know what? Let me even not say that. Research which is accepted globally has been done by white males because in reality, people, women have been doing research as well for just as long. But anyway, We're not going to get into the politics of that. Now, because of their gender and life experiences, they only think to research on things that have happened to them. They don't care about researching on what happens to a woman's body, let alone a black and brown woman's body. I mean, do you know that recent studies have shown that the pain we feel during menstruation is equal to the pain one feels when having a heart attack. My friend, basically, every single month, you have a heart attack. (laughs) And then we consider it normal. Our male bosses even have the audacity to say, menstruation is not an illness. It's not a condition. Be strong. Just stick it out. What? If you saw a man curled up, bleeding uncontrollably, having a heart attack, would you tell them, be strong? I digress. Yes, I know. My point is, we need women who look like us, like Mo, who can bring attention to the things that need to be studied. 
women who can have access to grants to do the research necessary for our quality of lives to improve. So I am very grateful for the work Mo does, and I hope you understand why. At Africana Woman, we give our guests their roses right now. Please find Mo on Instagram at Mo Sibyl. Tell her you heard her on the Africana Woman podcast. Take a screenshot of the episode and tag us. We want to keep the conversation going. The mission of Africana Woman has always been to tell more African women's stories. One of the ways that we are doing this is by helping you start your own podcast. If you have a burning idea and are interested in launching a podcast, but you don't know where to start, contact us at africanawoman at gmail.com. Your story is important. My playground is Instagram, so find me at Chulubai Design. Tag me, tell your friends about the Africana Woman podcast, and again, leave a review, especially on Apple Podcasts, because that helps us spread the word more about the show to other African sisters out there. So talk to you soon. This has been a production of Africana Woman Media. <music> <music>